This episode of the Stories from the Classroom podcast was recorded and edited in mid-February, and so it was before all of the coronavirus and distance learning was front and center for most educators. And so while our context of the conversation is not around distance learning, I think a lot of the takeaways here can be applied to distance learning as well as when you come back to your classrooms to have a more meaningful math experience with your students. So I hope this podcast helps you give meaningful and memorable experiences for your students whether virtual or in the classroom. Enjoy. I think one of the hardest things about being a math teacher is answering the question, why? Why when you're doing long division and you run out of numbers, do you add a decimal and a zero and then just keep going? Why can you turn a division of fractions problem into a multiplication problem as long as you flip the second fraction? Why can you cross-multiply fractions to see if they're equivalent? Why do adding two negatives results in a negative, but multiplying two negatives results in a positive? If 5 to the second power is 25, then how come 5 to the negative second power isn't negative 25? And that was one of the ones that came up when I first started teaching pre-algebra. Two questions in particular. One, how come something to the zero power is one? And second, why do negative exponents result in fractions? And so I started searching on YouTube and began to see other teachers explaining why these things were true. And they usually started out showing the positive exponents, working their way down to a zero exponent and then down to the negative exponents. And I began to start to see some of the patterns that when you're going down that chain, it's like you're dividing by whatever your base is every time. And so I was pretty excited because I was like, okay, now I've got a reason. I've got a pattern. This seems to make sense. And for the most part, students were pretty bought in and some of them were like, like, I, I still don't know why that, why an exponent of zero equals one. Uh, but the great thing about it is that even I've been teaching pre-algebra now for about six years, and even up to about two years ago, I was starting to see some more patterns when I was presenting that information to the kids. And I was like, and you see right here, like, I, I'm seeing this for the first time. Like, they're, they're additive inverses on the exponent, but they're resulting in the multiplicative inverses on the actual values. And I was super stoked and super excited to share my new aha moment with the students. But I've also answered the question, why does the math work like this with the response That's just the way that the math works out. When I didn't really have a good answer, I couldn't find a good answer that was satisfying to me and to the students. But I feel I didn't really begin to explore the whys of math until I became a math teacher myself. I liked math growing up. I was pretty good at math. I was good at finding the right answer. But I was never really challenged by a teacher to really think about why the things worked the way they did. And I think that's a lot of kids' experience in math. My guest today is a passionate math educator named Kevin Moore, who co-founded his own micro school so that he could begin to give students this meaningful mathematical experience that he was struggling to create in a traditional classroom. And if you've never heard of a micro school, it's a different kind of school model. And I'll use restaurants as an analogy. You have your chain restaurants with your large menus. They offer a little bit of everything. They're standardized across the country. You kind of know what you're going to get. Now, think of your local farm-to-table restaurant that maybe has five things on the menu. They do those things really well, and they're adaptable based on the current needs of where they are. A micro-school is like your farm-to-table kind of school. Some micro-schools may really focus on the arts. 
A place like Longview, which Kevin Moore co-founded, started out being a small school that specialized in teaching only math. They've expanded to computer science, reading and writing, and science, and students here attend classes Monday through Thursday to allow time for them to explore whatever arts avenue they want, perhaps through another micro school that is focused on the arts. I met Kevin and the team at Longview several years ago and saw them in action and knew that the way that they did math education was different and meaningful. And you can hear some of the students' experience in this video that's on the homepage of their website. It's different than my previous school because we used to just do all textbooks and they treated all the kids the same even if you couldn't do this thing where you are really good at this and the teachers did all the teaching. At Longview, you can be in the discussions, not just listening to them. The conversations are more led by the kids than the adults. If you don't understand something, the teacher helps another kid who understands it very well teach it along, I guess. That's very important because it teaches independence for the kids who are teaching the other kids, and it teaches the kid who is listening to like trust their peers and respect them a little bit more. It's more active. You have more time to do instead of listen. The students take charge of their own learning. I didn't feel like I was being challenged at all, but then I come here and I'm really challenged. I like that. It feels good when I solve a problem that I maybe couldn't solve before. It's a place where I can come to school and just speak my mind and not have to worry about being embarrassed by saying what I'm thinking. The first day I came here, I was like, I really like this school. In my conversation with Kevin, we explore how one teacher helped him to begin to view himself as a mathematician. We talk about his journey from traditional education to the micro school. He shares how the physical space of the micro school fosters the kind of learning that he hopes to see, but that it's not just about the physical space, but the larger impact comes from the approach of the teacher and how they approach teaching mathematics. We talk about what our role is and is not as math educators, how to redirect incorrect work without just giving away the answer, Kevin's favorite questions to ask when students have made a wrong turn, and much more. I'm Tom Gibson, and you're listening to Stories from the Classroom, and today we're exploring a better way to teach math. Stay tuned. This episode is sponsored by my How to Teach Kids About Money online course. How many times when it comes to money does anybody over the age of 20 say, why did they not teach me this when I was in school? Every kid deserves a teacher that will teach them about money. The problem is that a couple worksheets and a couple 30-minute lessons are not the most meaningful or memorable experiences for your students. You want to teach your students financial literacy skills, but you're not exactly sure how to do it in a way that they're going to remember for years to come. In 2014, this is exactly where I was at. I had read a book by a teacher who used something that he called a classroom economy, where students had classroom jobs and he paid them in classroom money. And with that classroom money, they had to pay rent on their desk. They had to pay fines for misbehavior in the class, and they were able to pay for items in a class store and a monthly class auction. 
The problem was that the book only had about six pages explaining how he did this classroom economy. But in 2014, I started my own classroom economy. And since then, I've been helping other teachers do the same in their classrooms to help teach their kids about money. I want to give you the tools and the resources to be able to do this in your classroom. So here is the plan for you to create money savvy students. Step one, enroll in the online course that I have created called How to Teach Kids About Money. That's at TomGibson.com slash Classroom Economy. Tom Gibson is spelled T-H-O-M-G-I-B-S-O-N dot com slash Classroom Economy. When you get there, there's a little button that says free preview. Step two, go through the free preview, which is the first three lessons absolutely free on the online course. These lessons give you an overview of the classroom economy, and I walk you through my class jobs and their salaries, and I share what my misbehavior finds are. Step three, if you feel this course is the right fit for you and what you want to be doing in your classroom, purchase the entire course. And step four, join the private Facebook group with other teachers that are implementing classroom economies with their students. It took me several years to figure out how to do this well in a way that used as little class time as possible. And so I want to save you that time of trial and error and seeing what works and what doesn't and share what I've learned in doing this since 2014. Every time you start something new, you're thinking, am I doing this right? Is this the best approach? What am I supposed to do next? Let me take you step-by-step through the process of creating your own classroom economy to teach your students about money in a way that leaves a lasting impact. Recently, I had a student who was a seventh grader in one of the first few years I was doing the classroom economy, and he is now a senior, and he came back to visit, and he asked me, Tom, are you still doing the classroom economy? And he started reminiscing about all the different ways that he used his money inside the classroom auctions and the different items he got, and how he tried to partner up with his friend to pool their money together. Had my financial lessons been a couple of worksheets and a few 30-minute lessons, he would not have been talking about it years later. Everyone is saying we need to be teaching these kids about money, that we need to be teaching them about earning and saving and spending and investing money. Be the teacher that teaches your students about money in a way that creates a meaningful and memorable experience for them. The listeners of this podcast can save 20% on the course by using the coupon code MONEY. So enroll today in the How to Teach Kids About Money course at TomGibson.com slash Classroom Economy. Tom Gibson, spelled T-H-O-M-G-I-B-S-O-N dot com slash Classroom Economy. Use the coupon code MONEY to get 20% off of this course and start teaching your students about money today with a meaningful and memorable experience of a classroom economy. And now my conversation with Kevin Moore, where we explore a better way to teach math. Mr. Kevin Moore, uh, I thought an interesting place to start this conversation would be uh, if you could share um, if there's there was if there was a pivotal math experience that you had growing up, be it positive or negative, um, in your grade school or collegiate math experience, the story that kind of sticks out in your mind. Okay. Um, I don't... I don't think it's necessarily a moment as it was an overall experience. So I think, um, I, I guess it would first start with high school. I really, growing up, I did not like um, math. I did not 
think it was interesting. I didn't think that um, the the math times that we had at school in in, um, classrooms from, uh, I would say, from probably third grade to middle school were were interesting to me at all. Um, But high school changed that. Um, I started to um, actually become more interested because of a teacher that I had a, a ninth grade uh, in ninth grade. And it wasn't that he was doing anything um, very different than what I experienced um, in middle school and elementary school, but there was a single difference. And that was making kids believe that they could do the math, like it was accessible to everyone. So he didn't think that there were just kids who were good at math. He ensure, he tried to impress upon his students that everyone could do this. And so um, I think that is what made me start to understand, well, yes, I could excel at math if I really wanted to, if I really put my, um, if I really became interested in it just for the sake of, being good at it, if nothing else. Um, And so I think that was a turning point. And then at the same time, I was having conversations with other um, learners um, about the math that we were doing. So I didn't feel like I was doing the math alone. It it didn't seem like a solitary experience. Um, I was actually having real conversations with other learners about mathematics. And I didn't have those kinds of experiences prior. Do you remember how he began to foster that mindset? Was it just through casual conversation? Was it through the tasks that he ended up giving you? How did he foster that that environment that students began to believe that they could do the math? I think it was just the culture that he had um, in the class, which was based on expectations he had for us. It was just a matter of saying... Um, why can't you do this? Or what do you think is difficult about this? Where are you missing it? And asking us the questions that cause us to think, oh, okay, if I ask the right questions or if I uh, think about something differently, um, I could have this become accessible. This is accessible to me. So it was just him being, and he, I think he was very much um, <laughs> experienced with working with high school age kids and um, he, and some of his responses were flippant, but they were very appropriate. Mm-hmm. And um, it pushed us to think better of ourselves to allow something to defeat us or um, think that there was something that we could not grasp. So how did you get into math education? Um, well, I always wanted to be a teacher. So I think that it was a matter of what brought about my interest in teaching math. And because that wasn't where I really, it it evolved. Um, And part of that evolution happened when I was in college and I had an opportunity to work with um, uh, adult learners who were having difficulty in mathematics and they were in remedial math classes. And um, working with them in um, this, I worked in what was called the academic support center. And oftentimes when people would come in, that is what they needed help with. And I worked with those, um, those adult learners who needed assistance in math. And over time, I started to gain an interest in teaching math. And I actually was told I was good at it. Um, people would come in and request that I work with them. And um, so I think that pushed me to believe that I could possibly teach math. 
Um, and when I became a teacher, it became a focus. I, I felt like it was one area that I had developed an interest in and thought that I was good at. And so I began to focus more in that area. Um, but I, my focus became more intent when I started to realize that while, yes, I can teach the math that I knew how to do, I wasn't able to provide learners with answers to questions about why things were working. Like, so yes, I can do, they, they would have the understanding that yes, you told me I can do it this way and I'll come up with the answer, but why does that work? And at first I had no answers for them. I was like, I, that's a good question. I have no idea why. And it really pushed those questions, which I started to hear again and again, which caused me to believe I wasn't doing those learners a service if I didn't answer those questions. So it pushed me to do my own investigations, my own work to improve as a mathematician, a person who, uh, um, or to gain greater understanding of mathematics so that I could answer those questions because I didn't think that I was doing them um, justice by not being able to answer those questions. So now you uh, co-founded the Number Lab Micro School, as well as now called Longview Learning Center. Just Longview Micro School. Mm -hmm. Longview Micro School. Um, Can you kind of speak to what is a micro school and and what led you to to go down this path versus kind of the traditional um, education, traditional middle school, high school uh, avenue? Sure. Well, having had lots of experience working in uh, public schools and private schools um, that were really traditional in focus, I started to realize that I wasn't a very traditional teacher. (laughs) Um, And I guess what I mean by that is the whys were important to me um, and systems for the uh, uh, replicating or um, complying with systems for the sake of justifying the system itself wasn't of interest to me. I was more interested in being able to ensure that systems were working for a very specific purpose for the improvement of learning. And so that became really important to me. I understood that learning um, was much more important to me than teaching. Um, And so I really wanted to ensure that whatever instruction that I was providing was for the sake of learners improving their abilities to learn. And so um, I decided that a lot of what I was experiencing um, in more traditional and even some schools that had more progressive elements to them, what I was really coming to understand was that what I idealized for learning environments, for the kinds of learning that I wanted to see happen would only be, it would only happen as a version of what I wanted and not necessarily the ideal. It would never be the ideal. I could never see that happening because what I recognized is that the cultures, the the mindsets in the institutions that I was working in were very, they were very different than my own. I had developed a very different opinion about um, learning and schooling. And um, 
So what I idealized would never happen in those environments. And so that is the reason Longview now exists, because it gives me the opportunity to start a school with intention um, and the intention of creating learning experiences for young learners that are based on uh, believing learners should have agency, believing learners should um, uh, have opportunity to have discussions with each other to, for them to really operate in the disciplines as mathematicians or as writers, as scientists, that they really fully understand that the discipline itself engages them, can be engaging. The discipline itself can be engaging. You don't have to find ways to engage learners, but the discipline adhering to um, the complexity of the discipline makes learning interesting. It helps learners to improve their skills as learners, their abilities to communicate, their abilities to um, collaborate with others, their ability to think um, or think critically, and to be creative. So those things were important to me. They became important to me, creating that kind of a learning environment where those things are primary. That's the primary focus. And so Longview exists for that purpose. So how do you do that? What does it end up looking like in the day-to-day? Well, um, I think anyone who walks into um, a, a, a classroom at Longview or learning space at Longview, what they will see is um, an open space. Um, and the space is going to, or the, it's, the space is designed to be able to let learners use the space how they deem the space, how they deem it appropriate for whatever task it is that they are engaged in. And so um, we don't have desks, we don't have, and, and um, we do have couches and that's very intentional. We want learners to be able to sit, have discussions. They are not going to be taking notes, but they're going to be actively involved in discussions. Um, they're going to be taught, all of the learning is visible. There, there are large whiteboards where they're, and movable whiteboards where um, they're writing all of their thinking. They're working in partnerships with others. So it's a very, it's a highly interactive learning environment. And the space is designed for such interaction. And again, because everything they're learning or they're thinking is being made visible, um, anybody at any time has an opportunity to critique what they see um, that another learner doing, asking questions about it, or um, giving some kind of comment, some sort of feedback for uh, the learner. And in that way, um, teaching isn't central to the adult in the, the room. It is dispersed. Everyone is a teacher. Everyone is a learner. Yeah, and I think even now, like, I mean, I teach at a private school now, which is more progressive, but even thinking of my time in in public school, like, there are ways that you can, you, it's harder to make the space exactly what you want it to make, but there are ways that you can make the space what you want it to foster this type of collaboration, this fo- foster this type of visible work that you're talking about, that people, students aren't scribbling notes into a little packet that's going to get shoved at the bottom of their backpack, but it's like on the wall, it's on the windows, it's on the tables. What do you? How do you speak to the the teachers that you work with that are teaching in a in a in a public school? Um, ways that they can begin to foster their own their space 
to fo- create their space to foster that type of mathematical environment. Yes. Well, I think that the first thing that has to happen is that you have to think of it as much more than adapting your learning environment for simply for visible learning. I think you also have to, it has to first start with believing that that's the way learning should happen. Like that is ideal. Um, learners benefit um they benefit greatly from having a learning environment in which they are part of a feedback loop, um, a part of um, an environment in which they are expected to communicate their ideas, um, that they're expected to actually take risks, create something, and put it out there and see what happens as a result of that. Um, And so I think that I am becoming more aware that this kind of learning is based on a kind of thinking. And in order to do this well, you have to embrace or you have to align yourself with the philosophy that is that undergirds this. It's, the under, it's a philosophy that is the underpinning of all of the things that we do. So it's not a matter of simply engaging learners. Um, I'm really trying my best to create an experience where learners see themselves as mathematicians and they're doing the work of mathematicians and I'm helping to facilitate that because I believe that that is going to be the best way that learners are actually going to learn mathematics. So I think before the adaptation or the restructuring of classrooms um, to look a certain way, there has to be this transformation in the way that teachers are thinking about learning. And so the teacher that is finding themselves doing more of a traditional math lesson, they've got their slides, they go through some of the problems, the students write down the notes, and then the students try some on their own. What type of lessons uh, do you do here? Like if If I'm a teacher and I'm hearing about this and I'm like, well, do I just tell them to do problems and then talk about it? Like, how do you support the students in this, and how do you structure it in a way where they are successful? And what does what does your help look like? What does your guidance look like? What is what is a lesson, a math lesson, mm-hmm. look like? Well, for us, um, the math. The first thing I think that um, we try to help teachers do um, is think of themselves as mathematicians and thinking of yourself as a mathematician, then you begin to realize that you can actually improve as a mathematician, just as you would a writer or reader. If I think of myself as a writer, then um, at some point, uh, then I'm going to be at a certain level as a writer. And there are things that I can do to improve my craft as a writer. And the same thing that happens, I think, in um, teaching mathematics, um, one has to see him or herself as a mathematician. And the first thing that I had to do in order um, to improve my teaching of mathematics was to improve my understanding of mathematics. And um, what I and what that serves to do, and we help teachers do that. That's part of what we do at Longview. That's part of what we do through our work at the Number Lab because the, the two work in tandem. Um, uh, really, the number the the Longview serves as um, a way for teachers to see the Number Lab ideas in action, and. So improving first one's understanding of the mathematics allows you to then um, have a very different way of approaching the teaching of mathematics. And so what 
um, we do when we have a lesson, which we really call a concept study. We we really are pushing teachers to see um, the 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 big ideas in mathematics and um, to understand that there's these. Um, ideas that are coming together that forge concepts. And so if we are going to teach something, what we're doing is helping learners understand that they have a foundation, they have understandings, and every new concept or every idea that we're exposing them to is really pushing or extending what they already know. So when we teach something, we start with something learners already know. We, we, um, and the concept begins to build from that base of knowledge that they already have. So we are very deliberate to help, um, uh, we're very deliberate in building lessons, again, which we call concept studies, that, that are deliberate in starting with a base, something that we believe learners know and building from that base of knowledge. Can you speak to what a number talk is. I observed one when I, when I first visited uh, the number lab. What is a number talk? How does it go? What's your objective with the number talk? Um, well, we, they're, they're really called number studies. And what we try to do is we try to get learners to understand that um, in math, there exist all of these different properties of number and there are these relationships between numbers and sets of numbers. And so in those, we, we just kind of put up numbers that have um, sets of numbers and we step back and ask, questions, ask learners to observe those sets of numbers and then to draw, um, um, make really critical observations that lead them to conclusions. So um, the goal is to get them to understand that numbers have properties um, that numbers belong and because of those properties they belong to sets and um, oftentimes there are intersections of sets because of commonalities that exist and we're just pushing learners to really be able to think critically it's a way to engage learners in critical discussion around number which increases their understanding of mathematics could you give an example of of how you structured one in the last week well, well, right. We our number studies are part of what we call thought exercises, and I haven't done any number studies this past week because we've been <laughs> doing quantitative comparisons and um, translating expressions and equations. Mm-hmm. So I haven't done any number um, uh, studies as of yet. But um, there's one number study that I am anticipating doing in the coming weeks that will actually push learners to think about um, numbers that are um, decimal numbers. I I like to do this because I think sometimes um, uh, our learners sometimes confuse decimals with uh, um, like numbers that are written in standard notation, standard decimal form, and they say, oh, that's a decimal. (laughs) But the actual places are the denote the decimals. And so having one that will have base tens um, values in it, one that will have, uh, there'll be a set that have multiples of 10 in it, and one that will have uh, multiples of two that are also multiples of 10. And asking um, learners to think about um, the relationships between those sets. And so how would, um, what are some commonalities among those sets? Um, common elements that they see, um, and then asking them to 
uh, find ways to describe each of those sets because I'm going to give those sets a, gen a generic notation like A. Set A equals, and it will be a set of decimals. Set B equals, and it'll be a set of multiples of 10. Set C equals, and it'll be multiple 10s that are also multiples of two. So um, just allowing them to be able to give, so if you can come up with an alternate descriptor of that set, what would you call it? Um, if we were looking for very deliberate ways to um, find inter intersections between those sets, what would be that intersection? What would we call that set? Um, so those are the kinds of things that we'll do in that particular number study. Yeah, and going back to something that you had said about the the teacher needs to see themselves as the math learner. Uh, I didn't study mathematics formally in college, but then going back to fifth grade when I first started teaching, I was just thinking like, Ugh, like I do not remember like how to multiply mixed numbers, or like if I do remember it, going back to what you had said, like being in a teaching position and having the students ask why really forces you to realize like. I don't think I ever learned the why, you know. And then there are times that, like, I've been teaching pre-algebra now for for I'm on my my sixth year of teaching pre-algebra, and even up to to two years ago, there were connections that I was beginning to make when mm -hmm. when I was looking at the relationships between uh, numbers with positive exponents and then having negative exponents and and all these inverses of each other. And I'm like, when I was explaining one, I was like, oh my gosh, I see it, you know. And I'm like, do you guys see this? I'm just now seeing this for the first time because uh, I'd been explaining all these different ways but not seeing it that way and so I think uh, I think that's going to be such a critical piece for any teacher that's wanting to particularly those teachers that didn't study mathematics formally because yes, yes. um, I feel the teachers that study mathematically mathematics formally almost have the challenge to where it it makes sense but they don't know how to articulate it and then the teachers that didn't, maybe you have more of your elementary school teachers yes. that, that are really strong in the, in the reading and the writing and the science, but you know, they're like, I don't know about some of this math stuff. I'm struggling mm -hmm. with it myself. They're, they almost have a benefit because they're kind of like now exploring the whys maybe for the first Correct. time. Yeah. But that's that's something I really wanted to to emphasize because me myself as a math teacher, I found that that's when I've gotten the most excited as an educator to just kind of share uh, like the connections that I found myself making, or or even just just creating that opportunity for the students to see it themselves. Correct. Correct. And and again, that's what I think um, my job is really is to facilitate um, an experience that will allow them that um, through their own critical observations, they are going to draw conclusions, they're going to make conjectures. I'm hoping that that's the work that, um, that they will do. And, and that is really the work of mathematicians. And in so many ways, we think uh, it's easier for us to see that in other disciplines. It's easier for us to see that um, in science. We allow, learn, we, we give, uh, we allow learners um, time to explore with a bit of information um, about a, a particular concept or idea, and we and then we you know allow them to investigate with that information, hoping hoping that they will draw some sort of conclusions through their investigations. But that's more difficult for us to see that in math, and that's uh, partly because that's the way we, we've all experienced math in ways that have not been very inspiring, or um, we've all had very, I would say. Um, <laughs> Uh, lackluster 
math experiences. I mean, we all were, most people were exposed to really, it was kill and drill. It was very, um, uh, um, very procedural oriented. And so uh, because of that, it's harder for us to think that math, that one can be creative with math. But you can be creative as a scientist, you can be creative as a writer, but it's much more difficult for people to see that math has a creative element. And it should. It's by its very nature uh, um, creative, um, and it should be. But the... It's not been our experience. We've all had these experiences that I think, as I said, um, were very lackluster. And so we, we don't see math in ways in which I think math could be, math is so beautiful or could be so, so much more beautiful than, um, than it is in schools. How do you redirect students? You, you're doing a presentation, a student is presenting on a problem. Um, several students have different ideas. You're not really seeing, they're not going in the direction uh, that you anticipated. Uh, they're going in a completely different direction. How do you, what are some of your strategies to redirect in a way that you don't just go up and say, no, you do it like this? I, I think questions. Questions, if a learner is struggling, I think asking questions is one of the most important thing that, things that you can do. Questions provide guidance. Um, and and when you do that, I think when teachers um, ask questions of learners, they ask themselves those same questions when they get they learn to ask themselves uh, questions, and other learners learn uh, uh, um, learn to ask certain questions. And I think questions unlock a lot um, for learners. And so I think my strategy is to step back and ask questions. And oftentimes I will tell other learners, we're not going to take it from them. We're going to believe that they can do it. And a well posed question, um, a, a thoughtful question can help learners unlock a lot. What are some of your favorite questions? Um, sometimes I ask learners to zoom out. Um, can you zoom out? And, and can you reread? Uh, would you please reread what came before it? Or can you reread the entire expression? Um, getting, asking them to do that um, and having them reconsider um, because I think oftentimes what I see, what learners often do, is they start working through problems and they get in. They they get so, um, I guess, they cue in on one part of the problem and they forget all of all everything else that uh, this larger picture in which it exists. So getting them to somehow back out uh, of that hole that they're in and see the entire problem is important. Um, but I also think that questions, and oftentimes it's content questions, so asking them to think about something, again, we use what we call concept studies, so taking them to a simpler example and saying, asking them, can you please walk me through this? Can you do this? If you, if you know this and you know this, then can you now readdress that? So giving them prompts, um, asking them to look at something in a simpler version of what they're doing and helping them to allow that to be used as a base, uh, helping them to re- understand that they have a base of knowledge that they can use. They probably aren't thinking of that at that point. So those are things that I do to kind of help them get unstuck. Do they know when you're asking questions that they got it wrong or do you ask some of the same questions regardless if they got it right or wrong? I think that's a really good question because I think that in oftentimes in math, 
we are more concerned about um, the right answer. And for me, because we're having discussions about mathematics, of course we want them to have an accurate understanding of the concepts that we're teaching. But what's also important is that they learn to have a reasonable idea about what it is that um, the problem that they're that they're developing a, their approach to. And so I think that asking them to think about what's reasonable and have that be debated amongst their peers um, in terms of is it, re- is it reasonable, but is it accurate? I think that is where I don't, I don't want to be um, seen as the individual in the room who holds all knowledge on that. And so uh, just stepping out of that, asking is it reasonable, asking the other learners do they agree, and then for someone to stand up and rebut what they or refute what they see is on the board or what someone has asserted, I think that we should develop a consensus as a community around that and that I not be um, the individual who they see as the authority in the room. So I really try not to think of right or wrong, is it reasonable, yes or no, what, what, is, what makes it reasonable, or if you disagree, for what reasons do you disagree? And if it's reasonable but not as accurate as you think it should be, for what reasons? So I think all of that really, de- I think it decentralizes the authority of the adult as the authority figure in the room. Yeah, and I think even just asking questions, students like, what aspects of what that student did do you agree with? What do, are there aspects that you disagree with? And I can't remember if it was you that I'd observed do this, but one of the things that I've taken away is like kind of the last ditch effort when I there's a student that maybe has done kind of like a, a they took a right and when they should have taken a left, but none of the other students are catching it. And everyone's like, yeah, that's that's what I got or something like that. Um, I think I heard you say once like there's one thing up there that I disagree with. And then you just let lay, laid that out and then it almost becomes like a, a, a hunt for the students yes. like to kind of start looking like, okay, let me see, let me compare everything. You know, they start looking a little bit harder. Uh, but I found that to be somewhat effective without saying that's the wrong answer, but there's, there's one thing up there that I disagree with. So you work with a lot of educators. Yes, yes. From all grade levels, I assume. Yes, what are some but of the primarily, I guess, one through or uh, K through nine? Okay, K through nine. What are some of the larger challenges that you see math educators, particularly those in public school? What challenges do you see them facing when trying to teach math in this way? Um, I really think the greatest challenge is moving from the framework that we all, most, I would say that most people have experienced um, in their educational background. So I think that envisioning that it could be done differently um, is really hard for a lot of, a lot of educators. And that's, it's understandable because you had 13 plus years of doing or experiencing something the same way. Um, and okay, if we take that and multiply it by 180 days or more for those um, 13 plus years, 
that's a lot to undo. That's a lot to try to get yourself to think differently about. And if you haven't had a very different experience, that makes it even more challenging. If If there's nothing to combat that over time, that makes it even more challenging. And so I think just rethinking um, mathematics, thinking of it more fluidly, thinking of it as a discipline, as opposed to thinking of it as, you know, I'm going to teach you these procedures when you see problems like this. Um, that's really difficult for a lot uh, for a lot of educators. And it works sometimes in that what you're being what learners are being asked to do, it works for that. Um, sometimes it works for that. Um, but could it be better? Could it be richer? Could we do more? Um, could we have learners have an experience with mathematics where most kids walk away actually saying that math is really one of my favorites. It's a favorite subject of mine. And I think that that's important because um, I think learners should see math as a creative endeavor. I think learners should see math as having value, not simply because you can use it um, in practical ways, but because you can talk about it in ways that helps you understand um, ideas that may not be very practical, but are still nonetheless intriguing. So I feel like those are, I, I, I don't think many kids have that experience but they could have that experience. But we are challenged by our own um, experiences in mathematics that, as I said before, were lackluster. And so what would be, what would be the steps to begin to overcome that for those educators? Um, I think that when we look at other disciplines and seeing the innovations that we've seen in instruction around those disciplines, that would be helpful. Um, understanding that at one time, you know, writing instruction looked very different. Science instruction looked very different. But um, there are ways in which kids are engaged as scientists and are engaged as writers. Um, that makes uh, writing much more interesting for writer uh, for learners, young learners, um, make science much more interesting and much more beneficial. Um, and so I think that's one way. And then once we see that, we can then begin to push ourselves around math instruction. Math instruction can be different. We have you know practices that um, we know that are important for mathematics teaching for it to be richer, um, but. We don't often know, as you said, how to do that, how to make that happen. Um, we know that people talk. I mean, I'm not the only one who has um, said that math can be different and who advocates for math looking differently, uh, math instruction looking differently. But we, we say those things. Um, they're, they're, they're the voices that are out there. But it's also challenging yourself just to take the risk and believe that um, when you start, it's not going to be your best. And when you do it again the next year, it's going to be better, but it still can always get better. And so having your, allowing yourself to believe that math instruction and instruction general, in general, your craft, is it's really iterative. It's not, going to all, it's not going to be what you always expect it to be, but you can change it. It can grow. You can get better. So um, when it doesn't feel like you're making progress, lean into the discomfort of that, don't abandon it, refine it. I think that would be also helpful. 
what are some resources that you have found to be pretty fruitful in, in guiding teachers and giving them just a visual to see what it could look like, even finding found the challenge is sometimes just finding good problems, uh, good ideas, good questions to ask students as opposed to solve this problem or simplify this problem. Where are resources that teachers can can start to to look for to to begin to experiment with implementing them in their classroom? Well, I think that you could take some of the same content that you've always taught, um, it used you used as prompts, and make it richer because you stop thinking of it as right or wrong or here's a procedure, but finding out what undergirds this, like what are these I, the, that, I, the ideas that are coming together th- that make this a concept worth studying, and I feel like it, that that thinking happens first and. Really, I think there's there's lots of great resources. For me, um, uh, um, a lot of Kathy Fosnell's works have been important. Joe's Bowl, Joe Bowler's works are really important um, to really understanding where we should be going uh, um, in, in mathematics. But really, I think it's just understanding that it's not necessarily like the, it's not, the textbook. It's not um, project-based or any of those kinds of things. It really is what, how can I begin to create a mathematics experience for learners that really is not about, it's not about any of those one things, but it's about getting them to understand mathematics as a rich discipline where there is talk, there's discussion. And I mean, I could put an equation on the board, but if I understand that equation, it has these properties of equality that are at work and that these different properties of equality are coming together for me to understand the value of X in the end. If my goal is to teach or have learners understand the value of these properties of equality, as opposed to just following procedures to get answers, I'm going to have a very different experience if that's what I believe. And so it's not really that prompt, but it's a way that prompt is used. And the prompt is being used based on beliefs that we have about teaching and learning. So I I really think that it's not as simple as having a new prompt or a new program. It is what is it that I am thinking as the teacher about what I want a learning experience in math to be like for these learners. What's your favorite aspect of being a math educator? Well, I like the idea of being having learners feel like they had real agency in in a in a in a learning space. Um, and that doesn't mean that they that um, they go like like everything goes awry because they have agency. I think um, when learners actually have agency um, and know that the expectation is that they are being engaged in ways that are productive and meaningful, I think that oftentimes they do so much better. Like I don't manage a classroom. I, I don't see myself as a classroom manager, and um, because the learners are doing a lot of the heavy cognitive lifting themselves. And that's the work they're engaged in. So oftentimes they don't have, and and because they want to be engaged in that work, 
I don't see myself managing. I see myself really facilitating. I'm stepping in saying, mm, I disagree with that, or mm, maybe uh, there was a missed opportunity there, or um, could someone have actually done that differently where there was a um, you know, consideration of this particular idea? I'm doing those things, and they're doing the heavy cognitive lifting, and I'm expecting them to do it. I believe that they can, and I think that that's what... That's where I get the greatest joy when I see them doing all of the things that I know young learners can do when given the opportunity. And you guys do trainings for teachers. And if there is anyone listening in Central Texas, where can they go uh, to find out um, how to participate in the training that you guys do here? Um, They can go to... um, thenumberlab.com and you can find information on, uh, and it is the number lab. <laughs> not just number uh, not lab. Not just number <laughs> lab. Um, and they can find lots of information on um, our collabs, which are our summer um they are really our summer professional development for teachers and there are different levels and we have them in different cities. We have one in Austin and we have one in Denver. Um, we have our advanced collab, um, which is here in Austin and they all are in the month of July. And where else can people find you guys on social media? Um, you can find us, uh, find us at, um, tw- on Twitter, um, uh, the number lab. Um, and you can follow, um, Longview Micro School, which is our lab school, you can follow us on Instagram. Yeah, and I've I've been following them on Twitter for a while, and they they often post. You guys often post just like just a picture of the students working, and there's like a little thing of like what was going on in that conversation. So I think that'd be just a great little little peek if you're kind of curious yes. on what what it looks like here, and so. And that's the way we can even communicate with our parent community through Twitter. It's real time. This is what's happening at our school right now. Well, Kevin, I appreciate the the experience and the expertise that you bring and the passion that you bring with just teaching mathematics and just not just the mathematics, but like showing the world of mathematics to young learners and and having them actually be in a place and in a space where they could believe that, that that's accessible to them um, at high levels, even at a young age. And well, so thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much for, for sharing your experience. And I think uh, teachers are going to get a lot of value out of thank this. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. If you'd like to connect with Kevin and the work he and the Longview team are doing, you can find them on Twitter at The Number Lab. They're also active on Instagram at long underscore view underscore ATX. If you want to learn a little bit more about the micro school, you can go to long view.com. And if you want to see what professional development opportunities there are for math educators, you can go to thenumberlab.com. Kevin mentioned a couple of mathematicians for teachers that are trying to learn more about teaching math in this way. One of them was Kathy Fosno. She's got a ton of different books depending on what grade level you teach. And so I linked to a page that has all of her books on Amazon that you can check out. And Joe Bowler was another one that he mentioned. And her book, Mathematical Mindsets, is linked in the show notes. And she is actually one of the people that started up the website ucubed.org, Y-O-U 
C-U-B-E-D.org. I use a ton of those resources, particularly in the week of inspirational math lessons in the first weeks of school to kind of begin to develop that growth mindset inside of my math classroom. So I've linked to that. Go to ucubed.org to check that out. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are three things you can do. One, enroll in the How to Teach Kids About Money course that I was mentioning at the beginning of the episode. You can enroll at tomgibson.com slash classroom economy. Tom Gibson, spelled T-H-O-M-G-I-B-S-O-N dot com slash classroom economy. Use coupon code money to get 20% off that course. The second thing you can do to support the podcast is leave a rating and review. High ratings and more reviews helps the podcast show up a little bit higher in the search results when people are looking for podcasts to listen to to help them do meaningful and memorable work in their classrooms. And the third thing that you can do to support the podcast is sign up for the Team EDU newsletter at tomgibson.com slash newsletter. It's a newsletter that I send out about a couple times a month sharing some of the different content that I have created for you to help you do meaningful and memorable work in the classroom as well as any other insightful things that I have found on the internet uh, that I think could inspire you to do some of that meaningful work. Team EDU, I hope you learned something today that will help you create meaningful and memorable experiences for your students. I'm Tom Gibson. Thanks so much for listening. And I will catch you next Friday on the next episode of Stories from the Classroom.